Welcome to the Failsafe, a podcast about writing and failure. On this episode, I talk with author Leslie Jameson. Her most recent book, a collection of essays called The Empathy Exams, won the 2012 Grey Wolf Press Nonfiction Prize and was named one of the best books of the year by NPR, The New York Times, and Publishers Weekly. The Gin Closet, Leslie's first book, was one of the San Francisco Chronicle's best books of the year. Leslie's articles, essays, and fiction have appeared in many publications, including Harper's, The Believer, and The New York Times. A graduate of Harvard and the Iowa Writers' Workshop, Leslie also recently graduated with her PhD from Yale. She's an assistant professor at Columbia University and also mentors through the Penn Prison Writing Program. The Failsafe is produced by Draft, the journal of process in the Iowa Writers' House. Draft publishes first and final drafts of stories, essays, and poems, along with author interviews about the creative process. Find them online at draftjournal.com. The Iowa Writers' House is a community literary organization based in Iowa City that's dedicated to creating a space for education, support, and resources for writers. Find them online at iowawritershouse.org. Coming up, what does Detroiting it mean, and how can it help you with your own writing? Leslie explains in this episode. I'm Rachel Yoder, and this is The Failsafe. Hey there, welcome to episode five. I have a great conversation with Leslie Jameson for you today. She was here in Iowa City during the Iowa City Book Festival back in October, sponsored by the UNESCO City of Literature. And Leslie graciously took some time out to talk with me over at the Iowa Writers House. In this interview, you will hear a mysterious third voice along with some iPhone sounds of a person taking photos and maybe some clinking plates. Um, (laughs) That mysterious third person is Andrea Wilson, who is the director of the Iowa Writers House. She sat in on our conversation, and uh, there are clinking plates because we were eating cookies and drinking coffee. It was great. Anyway, it was so wonderful to talk with Leslie, and I hope you enjoy the conversation too. So I have a question for you about writing in Iowa, being back in the hood. So you wrote Gin Closet before you came here for the workshop, right? I wrote the Gin Closet after I was in the workshop. I had Mm. two different Iowa eras. When did I know you? You knew me when I wasn't in the workshop. You knew me. So I was. I thought you were in the workshop. Yeah, no, Dave was in the workshop, but I was just working at Deluxe and not being in the workshop. Okay. But I was in the workshop from 2004 to 2006, and then we lived here from 2009 to 2011. So I had kind of like a second lease. It was so crazy because I, I loved Iowa City when I lived here the first time, but I so kind of assumed that that would be like the beginning and I was like that was my Iowa yeah exactly <laughs> so we're just gonna feel like but wait I'm back hi and then at one point I was like applying for a job I was like wow maybe this will be the city that I just like every time I think I've escaped the gravitational orbit I'm just like <laughs> right again right, right, right. Um, but I was writing short stories mainly when I was at the workshop and then started working on this like failed novel one of I have so many different failed novels that we can talk let's about let's talk about person. all of them well because I was curious because when I had thought that you were here in the workshop when I was here 
I was thinking, okay, so you were at the workshop for fiction, but you were working on the empathy exams. My timeline is totally off. So there's some there's some definite jaggedness in my own, not just my memory of my timeline, but my actual timeline. Like there was a lot of overlap where I was working on fiction and nonfiction right, right. projects. Like I was working on fiction and nonfiction during that time when okay. I was here, like another failed novel. Um, yeah, so I started working on it. I, I found it easier to work on a novel once I was outside the workshop environment. I don't know what your experience has been, but when I was in the workshop, I was just producing these stories, and it felt easier to produce stories because then the people could read the whole story. Absolutely. And also because I just think, at least for me to write a novel, I need to live in a deluded dream world where it's <laughs> awesome just to be able to sustain the momentum of working on it. And so the idea of, like, being 50 pages in and having a whole workshop just be like, yeah, I didn't like, I don't, I just like wouldn't keep reading about this character. And then to have to go home and yeah, keep just up the moment. So, yeah. yeah, so I felt like it was really useful for me to be out of that loop of constant feedback when I was trying to just like plunge into something longer. That said, I immediately plunged into just like a failed novel. And then in the midst of trying to write that failed novel, I started working on the novel that then became... The okay, so, so you were so you were at the workshop. You were writing short stories and workshopping those. Yeah, yeah. You were working on the gin closet eventually, which became a novel. But before that, you were working on another novel project. Yeah. What was that novel project? So the novel project, and actually, I didn't even start working on a novel till post workshop. Like I moved. Okay. I moved away. I started working on this novel that was called. Um, it was called curators of the interior um which was just already just what would hope did it have like from the outset was it a liberal arts superhero story (laughs) yeah it was pretty much it was about a band it was about a it was about a museum this like social justice museum that was dedicated to poverty and but it was these two brothers who ran it and they went like the idea was that they went kind of increasingly off the rails and just started basically hiring people to live in their museum in various conditions of poverty. Like, in a weird way, it actually is about some of the stuff that my nonfiction is about in terms of, like, what does it mean to, like, make a display of somebody else's suffering, Mm -hmm. but it was just trying to do it through fictional narrative, but it was very idea-driven. Like, I had these ideas about, like... Um, what does it mean to exploit other people's pain? Like, what does it mean to try to, like, represent reality? But I didn't know... I didn't know anything about my characters, really, and I didn't know what they wanted. Like, they were just little pieces I was moving around to try to get these ideas across. Right, right. So I think there was something a little, like, dead in the water. I kept writing, like, long, long periods of, like, backstory because I think I didn't know what was happening. You're like, I'm not going to figure it out. I'm just delving into their past. Yeah, yeah. Um, So it was definitely kind of a a mess. And I was also, at that point, I was living in uh, New York and working two different, I mean, I I worked one nine-to-five job and then I worked another nine-to-five job and I was finding it very hard to either wake up really early and write before work or come home. I was just, I wasn't figuring it out how to to be a writer and, yeah. and work in that way so I was it was like 
it wasn't even like I was like sitting down on the desk every day and failing for long right, periods of right. time. It was like I had like stolen snatches of time in, in which I would <laughs> fail at this novel. Um, so yeah, you're like was, got ten minutes, need to go. Just <laughs> write something that's not going to work at all. So that's so interesting because one, first of all, the idea for that novel sounds amazing. Like I want to read that novel, but also it it does sound like the empathy exam, you know, like, yeah, it's, you're, you're dealing and examining those same ideas in the empathy exam. So did you make, um, a conscious decision to to say, oh, I'm going to go at this via nonfiction or did it just sort of evolve into that? Yeah. I mean, first of all, part of like, part of the, one of the recuperative things that I feel like I can say about failure is that I really believe that like all of the projects that I've worked on are like a, like a compost heap of attempts and that the the old stuff or the, the new stuff that I'm working on is always growing in some way that I can either see or not see mm-hmm. or not see until like 10 years later it's growing out of the stuff I did before like right. whether or not the things I wrote before felt like successes or failures so I, I feel like there are these like really strong common threads between my different projects but they aren't always apparent to me at the time. So I absolutely, I think this is actually the first time I'd ever thought about that first failed novel and how it was related to some of the ideas that were working through the empathy exams. But I certainly think about the ways, the the first novel that I published, The Gin Closet, is like um, about, yeah, alcoholism, among other things. And the work I'm working on now is about recovery. Like, there are all these kind of just arcs between books. And there's, like, a, a line in the last essay in my essay collection that says, and my mom always said this was, like, her favorite line in the whole book. But it's, it's this line that says, like, su- I'm paraphrasing myself badly, but it's, like, suffering is interesting, but so is getting better. And uh-huh. the book of essays is actually so much about pain and the forms right. it takes and encountering it or not encountering it but I felt like that line was this like little seed that like the next book really wanted to grow out of so again I just feel like there are all these layers and it's kind of fun to dig back into the stuff that just felt like oh that well that was like a waste of four years you know but right, then you can right. see like oh no but I was like trying to wrestle with this thing that then I kept trying to wrestle with but I just needed a different genre I yeah. needed a different unit or I needed a different form or yeah and doing essential sort of thought work in yeah. a certain way you know yeah. that like you had to kind of wade through that failed novel to sort of get to a point where you could um dive into it via essays yeah. and ha- and come mm-hmm. through with this like clear voice that's mm-hmm. coming at it you know mm-hmm. from all the different sort of angles that you use in the empathy exams is this does any of this have to do with detroiting (laughs) which you told me to ask you about which i totally want to know what that is yeah it does it totally does all of it does i mean because detroiting began as a phrase when i was working on the gin closet and i think i had written like a draft or i might have been a couple of drafts in but at that point, the novel was told in the first person from one perspective. So it has the novel has two main female characters, a woman who's in her 20s named Stella, 
who goes in search of this older aunt who's been estranged from her family for like 30 years and finds her like basically drinking herself to death in this trailer in the Nevada desert. And the first draft of the novel was told entirely from Stella's perspective. And I was visiting my best friend, M from college. It's like amazing woman named Abby who was getting a PhD in criminology and she was doing mm. her field work at this prison in um, Marion, Ohio near Columbus. So I was flying to Columbus from LA, I think was where I was living then. Or maybe I might have been living in New Haven. And anyway, I got stuck in Detroit. It was in winter. There was right. a snowstorm. So I was stuck overnight in Detroit and I went to this hotel <laughs> and at this hotel I had but I was like bummed out you know and it was cold I'd been outside I well, who wants to, to be outside. stuck in Detroit right. yeah <laughs> I, I love the Detroit airport but not only in only so much yeah like <laughs> there's no one to stay there yeah. forever yeah <laughs> um but it was at this hotel in Detroit that I had because I was kept thinking like I really wanted the older female character in my novel the the estranged aunt right. like I wanted to have more of her character and more of her perspective in the book and I wanted to include these memories that you know I wanted to include memories that she had of giving birth and there were just different parts of her story that I wanted to find a way in so I kept thinking well maybe I'll have some letters from her or these diaries like her niece will find diaries but I hadn't written her as I didn't imagine her as a character who actually did a lot of like journaling and things like that so it all felt kind of forced and yeah but I kept I kept having this really strong feeling that some of her memories needed to be in the book and it it was in this like hotel in Detroit that I was like oh my god I think I I think I need to write this book with two first person perspectives like I think that her voice just needs to be one of the narrators of this book and it was it it was both thrilling because I was broke it broke the book open for me in this new way and I was like oh I see what it needs to be but then it was also daunting because I thought I had written the book but I was like oh you've just written half the book <laughs> right, great now right. you write the other half um, but it was this thing where and I still remember there was like this little like, cocktail napkin that might have been from the plane or hotel bar I don't remember um, where I was sort of writing down some of the stuff that I wanted from the aunt but that became Detroiting it then became this thing where it's like something goes off course or like goes awry but yeah. then this thing happens that somehow maybe couldn't have happened or couldn't have happened exactly that way if things hadn't gone off course and I assume I would have had that revelation about the novel <laughs> even if I hadn't been stuck overnight in Detroit but, but I, maybe I don't not. know Who yeah knows? it could be a different could be a different world we live in now <laughs> if I hadn't um, but it, yeah so Detroiting it just became this way of talking about taking this thing that feels like a real disappointment mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. F- figuring out, okay, what can happen in this situation that couldn't have happened um, without it. So I think it's going it's going to enter the lexicon now. <laughs> it's it's gonna become something <laughs> hashtag pending. Hashtag Detroiting. <laughs> I think it's really good to hear about especially from someone like you, the process of determining that a finished product is no longer a finished product and you actually are going to go back and, you know, put that time in to rewriting because Mm -hmm. you've, you've had a revelation about another voice or another piece of that. And I think, um, for writers that are sort of trying to figure out their voice, that can be a a daunting thing to say, you know, really, am I going to go back and, and really redo this from the beginning? 
and the necessity of doing that and, and hearing you talk about it is really important. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and so much of the creative process um, is, is this process of being like, oh, aha, I've had this breakthrough and it means mm -hmm. that I have so much more work to do. Mm -hmm. You know, this, this moment of, of like insight, but also agony, you know, yeah. you're like, oh, I know, I know, I see the light and I just, it's going to be another year. Yeah. Of, yeah. Yeah. And it'll be worth it. <laughs> right. 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 Yeah. I think that's so important to <laughs> to keep hold of that last part too. I mean, that's part of why I feel like time is such an important part of my editing process because sometimes I need to build in a certain amount of time between, say, coming up with a sense of what edits a piece needs and actually mm -hmm. when I'm going to try to implement them because if I'm trying to think about editing and I know that I'm going to like wake up the next morning and just try to start doing it, I it's like almost like I... I refuse to let myself see how big the edits need to be because I feel like preemptively exhausted or something. So sometimes I just need to be like, all I'm doing right now is just figuring out what this piece needs and then I'm going to just put it away for however many months and come back and work on it. And yeah, it's just like works. assignments for a future yeah, Leslie. Totally. Who's going to be Absolutely. like refreshed and totally Absolutely. up for yeah. the task. It's yeah. like a weird kind of like teleporting time travel or something like that where I'm like okay I'm just gonna think about the things now and then I'm gonna do them later and then it actually is true that like future Leslie is like a little bit more refreshed or at least like if I take I like I just did this I finished this like big draft in May and then put the book away for like four months while other people were reading it and then by the time I came back and it wasn't like I was I was working on other stuff in that time but by the time I came back to the book I did have a different relationship to it. I was able to, like, I call it, like, the ruthless comb sometimes where I, like, tick, where I'm just, like, really doing heavy editing. I was able to just let go of so much stuff and to just see it in a different way, and I just had more energy for it. Whereas if I tried to edit in May, every choice I made would have been the path of least resistance yeah, because absolutely. I was so tired, yep. you know? So. so one thing that seems to be coming out in, you know, as I talk with more more and more writers is that the creative process and writing is so much about figuring out ways to trick ourselves yeah. into keep yeah. going, trick ourselves into thinking it's not going to be that much work. Like how can I self deceive into thinking mm -hmm. I'm like a brilliant enough writer to finish this book? I mean, mm -hmm. there it's just so much about like the psychological mm -hmm. battle to keep going. I'm not to make you recapitulate other episodes. No. What, are, what are some of the cool tricks that you've heard? Oh, man. Did you know Lucas Mann? You probably know. You yeah, do know do. Lucas. Oh, okay, yeah. cool. He was on the last episode, and he was saying... I remember, you know, he was doing this long research thing where he followed um, a minor league baseball team for an entire season. Yeah. Um, he said he started taking bits of the book into workshop. Mm -hmm. And much like you, in the way you didn't want to, like, workshop a novel, mm -hmm. like, he, he very quickly learned, oh, my gosh, I can't workshop this book because I'll just stop mm -hmm. writing it. So he had to, like, trick himself into being, like, no, this is a really important project. Mm -hmm. And he took, like, the one good, mm -hmm. like, comment someone said yeah. and just used that to keep going. Someone's like, this could, this could be a New Yorker piece. And he's like, <laughs> you're right, it could. I'm going to keep going yeah. with that. You know, just, like, block everything else out. Yeah. Yeah, that's a great one. You just have to take, like, the kernel. And totally. And like, this, yes, this is what I'm going to believe. Yeah. And I'll forget all the other stuff. The disparity of feedback it, 
from everyone from your workshop team to editors is just incredible to me. I mean, when you yeah. talk about um, people who've received so many rejections and, you know, yeah. Man Booker Prize winners that said they threw away their, their novel manuscript yeah. because X number of people said it was terrible. Yeah. And then that same book later wins. That was Marlon James, a story he shared here yeah. at the book festival two years ago before um, A History of Southern Billings had, you know, even come to what it is right now. And so that tricking yourself piece is really a bit of self-preservation because oh, if, yeah, you, if you listen to everyone, you'd never end up with anything. Mm-mm. I eat those stories like candy, stories about like great books that got rejected at that. Like I never tire of them. They're so great <laughs> and they're so dur- they hold such a durable, important truth, which is just that like everything is so subjective and like genius just goes through all sorts of like terrible fates of misrecognition or totally getting ignored or so I just and and the thing is it's like Pascal's wager or something like that I feel like it's like it doesn't really matter if there I can't remember which philosopher it was but his deal was like it doesn't really matter if there is a god or not it's just like better for me to believe that there's a god and I feel like it's like it doesn't matter if it can be a near confused or not it's like better for you to believe that I, I mean not in a way that makes you blind to feedback but in a way that keeps you going and one of the best things that was said to me, when I first, my first fiction workshop here, I was only 21, and um, my teacher that semester was Elizabeth McCracken, who's so great, and um, she said something, I mean, I could be just like totally misquoting her, but now I've been misquoting her for 10 <laughs> years, so it's become its own Go truth, on. but yeah. I remember her saying something like, it's, it's like, it's a great day in workshop if 20% of what you hear is useful, which was so liberating to me because it got me out of this mindset of thinking that it was somehow disrespectful to people who had offered feedback to think that their feedback maybe I wasn't going to take up or didn't really resonate or didn't totally apply. And that somehow my job was to incorporate everybody's comments into this stellar revision that was going to, you know, like, and that she was just like, look, like some people, their feedback is really going to hit other people. It, it won't. That's the process going right. Not the process going wrong. Right. And I say that all the time to my students. I quote that 20% because I'm like, I think it frees people up when they're getting workshop and when they're responding to other people's work to think like you offer your thoughts and they can take them if they're useful or not, if they're not, but it's, but it's this idea that sort of part of the job is sorting through feedback rather than internalizing each piece of feedback yeah. and ultimately one year. It's worthy of a writer. <laughs> I felt really freed up when um, at a certain point I realized, oh, some people just aren't my readers. Yeah. And I can just throw away everything they told me mm-hmm. because not, not because I don't think they were good readers right. or good writers, but we just weren't coming at stuff from totally. from the same place. Totally. Yeah. And even I mean, even today some of my best friends, like, they're not really my readers. Yeah. And so I just Yeah. Take that for what it's worth. Yeah. Yeah. And different people are different kinds of readers too. Like I have I mean, I have like I'm just it's like tremendously lucky. I have all these great friends who are readers for me and um but they all offer different kinds of minds, you know, and it was this and actually, like, did you know Colleen Kinder? She would have been before. That sounds really time. familiar. She might, she might have just been. She was here two thousand five to two thousand eight, I guess, in the nonfiction program. Okay. Yeah, and um, anyway, but she's one of my best friends and somebody who, yeah, we just have been readers for each other for a very long time, and 
and we're both like we're very you know critical of each other's work but we're also just like real enthusiasts and when you were saying that <laughs> Lucas like taking the kernel that he needed um you know I think both Colleen and I have had experiences where we'll take quotes from letters we've written each other feedback letters and like put those quotes like she had a quote that I had written about this part of a response I'd given her about this essay she'd written about Iceland and she said she like had it on her laptop for a while because she was totally losing faith in this essay and just needed my little well, yeah that's such a gift going. to give yeah. another writer and that's... she's absolutely given it to me yeah. she she read this huge draft and actually gave me feedback as um a series of voice memos and I spent this whole cross-country flight just like listening to oh, that's voice memos and like taking all my little notes and it was so cool because I was like I am like 30,000 feet above the earth and just like in conversation with Colleen about my book. And yeah, yeah. Actually, it was really cool to get feedback via audio because there were things I felt like I was getting just even from her voice that I'm not sure would have come through in a letter. Like, she was trying to say essentially that parts of the book were sort of slow, but I could just see her being like, yeah, it got kind of turgid. <laughs> there was something about her, like how she was even trying to say it, where I was like, I've got to face this is real. You know, like I have to pay some attention here. So, um, I don't know. It's just it's it's it is a gift to sort of figure out um, who the people are who are going to be great readers and what different ways they're going to you know read. Some readers really kind of help me figure out. My friend Harriet really like helps me figure out what my central questions are, and other people help me figure out like maybe structurally how to break a piece open. Right, and, right. You know, it's, yeah. It's so great to have that sort of community. And what you just said about like you know, listening to your friend. I feel like now we need to start a hotline for writers. It's called like words of encouragement. And when you need some, you like call the 1-800 number and there's just like press one for keep, keep writing your novel. Press Mm -hmm. two for the essay is going to work out. Press three for these revisions will be great. You know, anyway, the future of the fail safe hotline. (laughs) I know. I I was going to say, I feel like in a way it's like the, the most encouraging possible thing you could hear is actually exactly what you're providing, which is like somebody else being like, this is what happened. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Chris one to hear Leslie Jameson talk about her failed novel. <laughs> or her first failed novel. Chris two for her second failed novel. Right. Chris three for her third failed okay, novel. Okay, well, I want to hear about those, but I also had, so you were writing short stories when you were here. Mm-hmm. Where are they? There is, I, honest to God, there's only one short story I wrote here that I ended up thinking was good. And um, I, I don't know whether that was just because I was too influenced by workshop feedback and so many of those stories just didn't get great feedback and then there was this one story that was like the last story I wrote that but it also really just felt like a breakthrough to me which Mm. is always how my writing life has worked it doesn't feel like slow incremental each piece is like a little better than the last it more feels like I write and write in one vein and then some pieces just like breaks like the floor drops out and it's somewhere somewhere else and then it and then I'll be in that vein and then so it's, I feel like I, it's like whatever that theory of evolution is, it's more like there are like spurts of change. I feel like that's how my writing life has worked. And so I wrote this story that I felt really nervous about. I felt really excited about and really nervous about uh, because it was kind of like a breakup story and it just felt maybe like stupid to write a breakup story. But it, but I was like obsessed with the idea of writing this breakup story. And then I had this workshop instructor who was like pretty tough. He was pretty tough, and uh, but he's so smart, and we like all just desperately wanted to 
use him and um I remember when I and he had been like really rough on my first story that semester and we were just really rough on a lot of people's stories and I just remember when he when it was like his turn to speak about this story which is called um quiet men I uh I just remember being like yeah my main thing I think this story needs to do is no page numbers but otherwise it's and stuff and I was like oh my god like it was this unprecedented moment in my I doubt he used the word perfect in any context (laughs) but it was it yeah but it also felt like this story that was pursuing something that I just urgently wanted to be writing about even though I could feel these censor voices in my head being like nobody wants to read your breakup story like nobody cares about your heartbreak it was a very autobiographical story and that I just kind of followed it anyway, and that I do think it was the, the thing I wrote here that had some kind of, like, this kind of life inside yeah, of the other Yeah, an energy, that, yeah, 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 a really vital energy to it. So, yeah. the, so those stories you were working on here, and then the novels, one, two, and three, that, that are in the, the drawers... Yeah. Um, do you see, we, we talked about how maybe novel number one was compost for the empathy exams or two and three do you see those kind of coming through and what you've been working on now yeah that's interesting I think well are they just part of like your your obsessions yeah yeah, you know the things that have been obsessing you over the last decade I think that there definitely are obsessions the second novel is this boarding school novel that I think in some ways I I still like would like to return to it and like I'm obsessed with I never went to boarding school, but I just find them totally fascinating. And also just, like, female, teenage female friendships. You could just dedicate your whole life to writing about that. Truly. Um, My friend just published this novel about, like, a toxic teenage female friendship. It was, was like, a whole subject. Like, um, but it was also about, there was this sort of evil plastic surgeon who was at the center of it. I wanted to write a thriller. That was my, like, call to myself. And it was very much, I mean, it was very much about bodies and beauty, and uh, there was this kind of idea that this set of girls was, like, willfully deforming themselves, and so I think it was also this idea about kind of being drawn to pain in a certain way, or the residue of pain, and all of those are ideas that come up a lot in my nonfiction, right, so right. I, I, I do feel like there were these continuities, and and then, I mean, in the way that their novel was the most direct kind of compost, but it necessarily thematic it was just I was working on this novel about it was a historical novel about the Sandinista revolution in Nicaragua Mm -hmm. and it was I'd done so much research and was really committed to this idea of writing something very far away from my own life and and but the novel just was so dead it was really bogged down by its research I think it was hard for me to find its pulse in all of that knowledge and, um, and so I just and it went through different iterations at one point I was like I'm gonna make it a magical realist novel like I just I had so many different plans and schemes um but it, I really I started writing essays more seriously as honestly just like a way of escaping from it because it was not it felt like I was just trudging through it right um, right and so I think that the the essays got this force out of being a secret side project like they got to feel really fun and free and I also think that the essays were another way of manifesting the urge to write about lives that weren't mine Mm -hmm. I just found this other way to do it um 
because it wasn't it somehow it wasn't happening for me in the novel like I was having trouble with a lot of it was just about authority like I was like what what do I possibly have to say about the experience of being a Nicaraguan revolutionary in the late 70s like I just couldn't it's not that theoretically I think people shouldn't write about stuff they haven't lived I couldn't trick myself kind of into being like I have something useful to say oh, that's about interesting. being yeah. revolutionary but I was really interested in this idea of writing about other people's lives so I think that's why some of my essays started to mm-hmm. be obviously some of my essays are about my own life but a lot of them also involve reporting and interviews and so I think it was like I found this other way to get at some of what the novel was trying to do yeah I I love the side project as the escape because it feels rebellious, right? Yeah. Like, I'm not going to work on the thing yeah. I should be working yeah, on. I'm totally. going to do whatever I want over here in this little document. And then, Do you often have a couple things running? Um, well, back in the day when I used to write <laughs> before my child. Um, I mean, that's. I feel like that's how my thesis came yeah. to be um, when I was in the nonfiction program. It was really an act of rebellion where I'm like, I'm not going to do something that's, like, super serious and super cerebral. At least I didn't think it was, like, super cerebral. I think it's, I think it's kind of smart now. But it, but I was, like, I want to do something where I can write about, like, cats and babies and unicorns. And it's, and it's still, like, yeah. smart and viable. Yeah. And fun. Yeah. Um, because I was just, like, totally MFA'd out yeah. at that point. Yeah. And so I think that project took off because it had the energy of like being a rebellion yeah and the writing really kind of embodied that rebellion and took on that yeah I think I heard you read from it at some point I have a memory of you reading something really exciting I remember it was at the library because I remember you were I was like Leslie Jameson's here and she (laughs) laughed at like my the tiny men in your boobs essay (laughs) (laughs) yeah that's so awesome I do remember yeah but I feel like it's exactly it I mean and I love the thing that I read of yours for them um oh yeah narrative was it narrative yeah 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 yeah. but that um, that also felt like um I mean I don't know what the genesis of that but I mean all the work of yours that I've read also feels like it's operating according to its own gravity and kind of energy forces so it feels like you found ways to the struggle was real writing those pieces yeah I mean it was I had to kind of trick myself into it do you I mean, it seems what I'm hearing from you is a lot of your stuff, you kind of have an idea. Mm-hmm. And it seems like if you have an idea and kind of try to embody that in fiction, maybe it gets more bogged down and then you kind yeah. of turn to essay and it like yeah, yeah. lightens it up or something. That's interesting. I do think, I mean, I do think there's something about the form of the essay that I just am really drawn to, be, partially because it, it helps me come come in with maybe some notion of what I want to explore but something about the form helps me surprise myself along the way like because I very much I mean part of what happened when I started writing essays was I started being more in contact with the magazine world which was not a world I knew anything about and I'm terrible at the magazine world like I'm not a good fit for the magazine world because it's all about pitching and pitching is totally antithetical to my process because I don't I mean, that sounds like like the most ponderous, like, self-righteous thing to say. I feel like like, it's so (laughs) antithetical to, like, any writer's process to be like, 
let me promo the piece that I'm right. thinking about right, writing. Right, right, right. And kind of anticipating what it's going to be before you write it. Like, oh, I haven't so taken weird. this trip yeah. yet, but here's what I think I'm going to find, and here's, like, kind of what I think the core <laughs> message is going to be. Whereas for me, I feel like I often come in with a question or, like, something I really want to explore, and then I'm just like, what will I find? And whether it's, like, what will I find when I take this physical trip or, like, what will I find when I, like, dig deep into... Like, I was just, I just did this, like, etymology dive into the word lush, and I was like, I don't know what I'm going to find, yeah. and I found all this crazy stuff, you know? And so I feel like there are different ways, like, the trip can happen, and different ways, like, surprise can happen, but there's something about, maybe with fiction, it, when I go in with an idea, I, it's, it's harder to, for something about the genre, to, for me to surprise myself yeah. in that genre, yeah. even though so many ways in which it could that's something for me it's like I can bring all my baggage into an essay but I don't have to worry that the thing is going to end up feeling too predetermined because there's something about the nature of the form itself whether it's like reporting or research where it's going to put me into contact with all this stuff that's going to like upend what I thought or push against what I thought or there's like a real quality of otherness whether it's archive otherness or real life human being otherness or text that you're responding to otherness like and I think that otherness is part of what like helps it stay really live for yeah me in absolutely some way and then fiction somehow part of what I think became harder for me was I wasn't having I I, I, I had lost the thread somehow of how to encounter otherness in that way in fiction I totally get what you're saying and I've I've had this whole kind of conversation with myself before too because I mean, obviously, I love writing short stories, but I think I love, like, the form of the essay more. There's something that's, like, at least now more exciting and mysterious and invigorating. Not that, like, straight-up narrative can't be exciting and mysterious, but something about, like, the athleticism of an essay where, you know, it can be cultural criticism, and then it can turn to, like, memoir, and then it can turn to something completely different, like... That is really exciting to me, and because I'm excited by the form, I think it makes my writing better. Yeah. And I'm sure, like, I could find something in the future that's really going to excite me about, like, narrative, um, or about, you know, like, the novel, um, but I'm just, I'm not there right now, and so I, that's yeah. why I've really been digging yeah. the essay. Yeah, 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 yeah. And it's, I, that resonates so much for me, because I've always, I do feel like I want to write fiction again. It just has to be something that I come across where I think, oh, I could explore this in fiction in a way that I just don't know how to in nonfiction. Like, right. It has to be something where I feel like somehow fiction is the way that feels free and exciting and possible. Um, and yeah, it's like the only thing I have in this novel idea, but it's so weird because it's like it, it would be this it would be a story all about a a memoir like the process of writing a memoir and then this relationship where one person writes and it kind of damages the thing but it was somehow like actually the thing that I felt most like oh like it would be so fun to build a fictional infrastructure to think about how this plays out of writing about other people's lives and the kind of violence that can happen yeah, in that yeah. process but it was like it's somehow this the subject had to be non-fiction <laughs> in order for fiction to feel like the 
like fun secret I'd love mysteries. I hear about a writer in New York trying to write about being a Nicaraguan revolutionary. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's like yeah, the form right. has to do something like exciting or, yeah. or quirky. Right. Right. Um, I think for me, it's just because it's like a failure on my part of imagination. Like, I just don't think I'm a good enough storyteller to just like write a straight up nar- narrative. And there are some people who like that is that is why they were put on Earth. You know, right. like they are amazing storytellers. Right. And I think sure I can tell a story, but I think I'm better at sort of doing other stuff. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, were you so you were in the nonfiction and the fiction program here? Or I, I got I went to um, University of Arizona and got MFA in fiction. Yeah. When I. Yeah, it was I feel like I was very young. Um, oh, and I love too. Yeah, we are sort of we're like we have kind of similar genre genre arcs. I feel like, or at least just like roots in both. Yeah, from yeah. Fiction to nonfiction. And I really like I I was I think I was saying this to you or I said it yesterday that I just really feel like it's straight a short story because I haven't done mm-hmm. it in years yeah. and it feels like <gasps> yeah like eating a bunch of dessert or something. Maybe like, like, your cathartic side project that no one knows about. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Totally. Although I'm like blabbing about it all over town, but I had yeah I had a very similar weirdly my family ended up on Hilton Head for a week this summer, which is never a place I've been, but a former student of mine has a house there, and she was like, you should use our house. Nice. And I was like, okay. <laughs> and it, it's just such a strange place on many levels, but there's this one little area of it called Deer Island, where all the houses are um, octagonal tree houses. Like, it's so Ooh. fucking weird and awesome, and they're just like these, like, these octagons up in the trees. Like, it looks like a weird, like, somebody in the 70s was imagining the future. Or yeah, yeah, like yeah. And they were like, we'll all live in trees and houses with eight sides. And But I did have this feeling that I just hadn't had in forever. I was just like, I want to write a short story. I want to call it Dear Island. It's going to be about a babysitter. And then I was like, where did that come from? That you just know? gave and me chills like, <laughs> for some reason. <laughs> um yeah, and so I, I mean, it's, I haven't written the short story, but it was really, but it, I, that thing you were saying about it feels like eating just like a bunch of dessert, like, yeah. it was so exciting, it's like, it has been many years since I've tried to write a short story, and there was something about it that, the idea of it that felt kind of just devilish, you yeah. know, and like, in this like, great way, like, so, yeah. I think whenever you get a title for a short story, you have to write it, because yeah. that's always been my experience, I had like a similar moment where I'm like, I'm going to write a story, it's going to be called White Horses, and it's going to be about <laughs> yeah. these two 20-something girls, and they're like, you know, fraught, sisterly yeah. friendship. Yeah. And, and then I'm like, it, it has to happen. And also it. I'm like, yeah. I just want a story named White Horses. Totally. You know? so great. And I think so much of the times, tra- t- like, titles for me are either just there from the beginning, and it's like inevitable and kismet, yeah. or it's just... Hey there, just wanted to take a quick break to thank you for listening. This is our fifth episode of The Fail Safe, and we already have five more episodes in production with guests that include Roxanne Gay, Laura Vandenberg, Alyssa Nutting, and Jessica Hopper. If you have listened to and liked or even loved our podcast, I'm asking you for a little help as we continue to build our audience. Please, if you can, give us a positive review on iTunes and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Even better, consider donating to support The Failsafe. It's really easy. You just visit our website, thefailsafepodcast.com, scroll down, and click on the Donate Slash Love button. 
Absolutely any size of a gift helps us enormously. We'll use your donations for our tech needs, our live events and other production and marketing costs, and really, really, truly thank you for listening. That anyone listens to this podcast is absolutely incredible for us. We love you guys. Okay, now back to the show. Leslie and I wrap up by talking about what it's like to be a writer who's married to another writer. Right? Okay, here we go. How did you and your husband is Charles Bach, right? Yeah. How did you guys meet? We met, yeah, we met in a very general way. Um, I think we just we both work at this workspace in um, uh, in Union Square, and we yeah. and yeah, I just it's funny. Some I feel like some writers get really irritated by talking about process, but I'm fascinated by process. And I like whenever somebody asks, like I feel like there will be a thing like, oh, somebody's gonna ask like the process question at a reading. But I just think it's so interesting. Like I'm fascinated by where other writers write when they write, what they need to do to, like, get themselves into the mode. I love those questions, too, yeah. obviously. Um, yeah. So, I, anyway, a big part of moving to New York or something that just felt really key to me early on was, like, starting to work at this workspace. Mm-hmm. Because I have definitely had periods in my life where I've written at home, and I like writing in all kinds of, like, I mean, I write all over the place. Like, I write in hotel rooms. I write, you know, like, but... There was something about, like, going to work that really helped me, and I also have moved a few different times since I moved to New York, and, but this writing space has stayed constant, and, and it's just, like, it's, I mean, it's in kind of just, like, an improbable, it doesn't feel like a literary part of town, like, it's, like, this really ugly block on 14th Street with, like, a party city across the street, (laughs) and, like, there was the bartending school right underneath us that used to be a (laughs) massage parlor, and it's now just empty, and... Um, so it's kind of just like an odd spot, but it feels, it's really nice. And we met in the, there's like a kitchen space there and we had this, um, mutual friend who was, I don't know if his name Charles Schoen, but yeah, we had like a tattoo conversation that was the beginning. So he asked me what my tattoo said. I'm not the first person who's done that. And <laughs> we talked a little bit about my tattoo and then he has like a thousand tattoos. I think he might have 11 and we were, so we were talking about some of his tattoos and uh, he showed me somehow, I think, I, I feel like I took it there first because it makes us sound both kind of like assholes so the next <laughs> place the conversation went to. But I think I said something about in the fairly recent past, somebody had written to me to ask me to write this one line, actually from that one short story that that's really, the, I think, the only short story I've ever published anywhere but somebody really liked this one line from it and she was like I want to get this line tattooed across my back like will you write it in your handwriting that's amazing so that, yeah. yeah it was so cool um, and he was like oh that's so neat and then he was like somebody just got my like book cover tattooed across their <laughs> arm like I was like oh shit like outplayed like but, but then it was funny because then he showed me the title and I realized I I didn't hadn't realized who he was. You're like, oh, wait, no, I have that tattoo also. <laughs> I have a book like, cover oh, on my back. Like, it's crazy. I love that, <laughs> love that cover. Um, and so I realized, like, I had read his his first novel. is this beautiful book called Beautiful Children that came out in 2008. And I had, I guess I hadn't read it. I had listened to it on, a, on an Iowa drive, actually, because I feel like I used to listen to more books on tape when I would drive between, like, a lot between Iowa and California. Yeah. Um, and I had listened to Beautiful Children and really loved it. So I was like, oh, you wrote Beautiful Children? Because I recognized it. Like, I didn't show me this photograph of the tattoo. And 
And that was the beginning. We... So did, yeah. did you ever have um, feelings about, like, being married to a writer yeah. or not being married to a writer? I know yeah. some writers are like, oh my gosh, I would never yeah. marry a writer. Yeah, 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 it sounds yeah. miserable. Or... I mean, I have a real track record. I've almost always, just like almost all my relationships have been with writers, so I've kind of, like, never known another, <laughs> another way. I mean, I've definitely tried. I've tried really hard to date non-writers because I think I thought that was going to be the answer you yeah know? yeah so there's like the tow truck driver and the lawyer and the personal trainer and the you know just it's all different just yeah just different men <laughs> but um but it did feel like I but somehow it just the people that I have connected with have yeah been writers but that said there's definitely I mean there's a lot that's amazing about it you know we we are definitely each other's like first readers which is awesome and um I really trust him he's got his mind works really differently than mine but he's an incredibly lucid and just like game-changing reader Mm. for me like he'll just have these responses to something he'll be like you just you need to set this up earlier we need to like connect with your insecurity earlier on or just these kind of key things about the texture or the insight that just feel right on to me um so his directives I just really trust and right. and hopefully I, I think I'm useful to him as well so that's a great thing to just be able to share each other's work on that like deepest creative level and then also to kind of we both just like know the ins and outs of like the professional side of it so yeah he we can process all that stuff that's, without having to like run a lot of catch up, which that is sounds nice. amazing. Yeah. yeah, and then I mean, and then there's you know, I think there's also stuff that's kind of fraught about being in the same fields, but I do feel like it's for me, it all comes back to that just like basic level of being able to connect to each other's work and respect it because all the other like emotions that we both have kind of are all happening, which is that like baseline infrastructure of just like loving what the other person does yeah they can you know and he just put out this book last april his second novel that's just it's called alice and oliver and it's just like so gorgeous and moving and sad and also this like affirmation of love and i just felt so proud to think Mm -hmm. about this book going out in the world and imagining all the people who were gonna read it and find something in it that helped them be inside their own it's a you know book about illness and marriage and motherhood and I just knew that so many people were going to find something that made them feel less alone in their yeah, lives yeah. and I felt so proud of him so have you ever had a moment with him or in other relationships with writers where you're like no no just stop just no I can't hear your feedback or your partner's right. been like no, just we can't do this. Yeah, 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 yeah. Like in in with in relation to like a specific thing or like in general kind of. I mean, where maybe down. they weren't a good reader, or maybe right, it was like right. more fraud or a specific thing. I'm just yeah, wondering yeah, if yeah. I ever. Mean, I think sometimes I have been in relationships with three poets, and <laughs> I think sometimes with poets, I would get a little stressed out about whether or not I really like understood their work. Mm. So I would feel. Oh, the I poets. Would, yeah, like, I would feel, because this is, like, really my problem, but it, I think that I would 
get this fear that I didn't get it or I would tr- instead of being useful to them and just being able to be real about my reaction so I'm like I really like instead of just being able to say oh I like loved how this poem began but like it kind of lost me part way through right right I would be so focused on trying to prove that I like understood exactly what it was doing or I was finding all these nuances in it that I think I was just sort of this weird little <laughs> performing seal rather than just like a useful reader yeah so um I think sometimes there can be just like a lot of different things at stake and I will say my husband was such a helpful reader for me um he read like a very early one of the earliest drafts of this book that I've been working on yeah. and but it's kind of stressful for a partner to be reading a long book while you're living together because oh I was so like I just like you know I wanted I I was afraid that it was like a slow read and so I was always just like trying to stop myself then I would be like checking like to see how many pages he had like read at the bed you know and then I'd be like oh it doesn't seem you read very much it was bad it was like it was it probably really stressed him out so um so yeah I think there can be it sounds it sounds akin to like when you're in the same room you get someone a short story and you just kind of sit there and watch them read it but you just have to do that with a spouse over like yeah 10 days yeah. that sounds agonizing yeah. well one of the things that like I feel like my friends in the workshop and I would always joke about like the person who would say like yeah I picked up your story I started <laughs> reading it it's so good and then but then you just like never like they would just be like they would just always be in that position having started but they never so. And you're like, why didn't you finish it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, and it's kind of like, and it just got to a point like where we sort of be like, just don't tell me. Yeah. Like, never tell me when you've started something because I don't want to have it in my mind. Right. It's like a dangling thread. Like, yeah. <laughs> so. so guys, don't say you'll read someone's story and then not read it or else start it, but then put it down because we are a neurotic bunch, us writers, and we will wilt. And also, speaking of not reading things, Mark, Mark, I still have your book to read. It's in my email. I haven't gotten to it yet. I know you sent it like six months ago. I'm still really excited to read it. I'm sure it's really good. Sorry I haven't read it, Mark. Sorry. Um, Anyway, hey, big thanks to Leslie for talking with me. It was so much fun. Please come back to Iowa City anytime. I will have more cookies here waiting for you. Leslie's books, again, are The Empathy Exams and The Gin Closet. You can also find her writing in the bookends column of the New York Times rather frequently, so check her out there. If you can, please show us a little love and donate to The Failsafe at thefailsafepodcast.com. As ever, The Failsafe is a joint effort of Draft, the Journal of Process, and the Iowa Writers' House. Draft Journal publishes first and final drafts of stories, essays, and poems, along with author interviews about the creative process. Find them online at draftjournal.com. The Iowa Writers' House is a community literary organization based in Iowa City that's dedicated to creating a space for education, support, and resources for writers. Find out more about them at iowawritershouse.org. Thanks for listening. That's it for this episode of The Failsafe.